All right, uh, I want to share a message this morning that's going to be a little different. You know, a lot of times I overwhelm you with scriptures. Today, there won't be as many scriptures. Uh, those of you that have been here all summer know that we went through the last 12 weeks of uh, the minor prophets, and we finished last week with Malachi. And I just want to have you try to imagine, maybe you've even experienced this. Um, I would use a book, but in case some of you don't read, we'll use a movie as an example. So imagine it's a three-hour movie. And you're sitting down and you're well into the movie, you're into the first hour of the movie, and this thing has got your attention. And all of a sudden the phone rings, and because you love ministry, you got to run. And you come back and it's an hour later, and you run back in there and sit down and watch the rest of the movie. And you go, what in the world happened while I was gone? I can't follow the storyline, who are these characters, what's taking place? I don't have a clue. Now, I know you got DVRs, but pretend like you don't. All of that middle section of the movie is gone that set the stage for what was coming at the end. That's kind of like what happens with us as Christians when we read and study our Bible. We can go through that Old Testament, and we finished up in Malachi, and it was the time of Nehemiah, and, and, and things were... Uh, reasonably well, going well under the Persian Empire, sort of. They'd been sent back to their land. The people had had a lot of discouragement and trouble. We, we've talked about what, how long it took them to rebuild the temple and all that stuff. But, but we leave the New Testament, relative calm in the land. The people were allowed to come back, those that wanted to. The temple was built. They were doing temple worship. And then all of a sudden, we turn the next page, and we're in the New Testament. And if you've ever thought about this, and you know, just humor me if you haven't, all of a sudden, wait a minute, where'd the Romans come from? What's this stuff about this, these, these brutal Romans? Who are these Pharisees things? Huh? Who are the Sadducees? What the heck's a zealot? Where'd the synagogues come from? All of these things changed just because we turned a page. And most of us have no idea what took place in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think, personally, it helps me to understand a lot better as I start reading and studying the New Testament if I have a little bit of an understanding what took place in the middle. And the middle was approximately 400 years. 400 years. The title of the message is basically 400 years of silence. The question is, was God really silent? This 400-year time frame sets the stage for what we call the New Testament, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the forgiveness of sin, the establishment of a church, the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in his people. 400 years passed in what we call the silent period. The silent period is, is something that changed dramatically, especially for Judah, Judea, for Israel. Culturally, major change. Politically, major change. Religiously, major change. All this took place in 400 years, and all of a sudden we get exposed to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we, we don't even know what happened. 
Now, during that time, we call it the silent period, or it's often called the silent period, because there is no, no trustworthy indication that God spoke through prophets. There was nobody saying, the Lord speaks, or the Lord says, or thus saith the Lord. Now, during this 400 period time, we do have some information that helps us to understand a little bit of what took place. A lot of it that we see in the Bible is actually found in the book of Daniel. If you've ever read the book of Daniel, you start reading some of these prophetic pictures and you wonder, what in the world is that? What are they talking about? When you get in chapters 8, 9, 10 of Daniel, you start to see a little bit about different um, periods of time that were being prophesied about that took place in this 400-year period called the Intertestamental Period. And there are some books that have been written back in the day that never made the canon of Bible. They never, they never met the, the requirements to be considered God-inspired books and put in our Bible. They're called the Apocrypha. And there was at least 14 of them. Some people say 17 of them. Some of them were actually put in the Catholic Bible, if you're familiar with the Catholic Bible. You may have heard of First and Second Maccabees. In fact, there was First, Second, Third, and Fourth Maccabees. And there was 13, 14 other books that did not meet the canon of Scripture. In other words, if you read them, they don't line up real well with the rest of Scripture. There's a lot of contradictions, a lot of errors. So that's why they did not make the Bible, the Protestant Bible that you and I are familiar with, because they were not considered the God-inspired Word of God, but they were written in that time. So there's a lot of information that could be gleaned about what was taking place during that time, even though it wasn't God-inspired. Otherwise, we get some information from uh, historians like Josephus, who wrote from that time period. So we get an idea of what took place. But as far as the Bible is concerned, other than the book of Daniel, we don't get a whole lot. And in my mind, it's like kind of watching the first hour of the movie, jumping to the third hour of the movie, and it's really good, but I I missed something. I missed a lot. And I, I think it helps me anyway, and I hope it helps you, to understand a little bit more about what took place during that time frame. We're going to discover that during that time frame where it appears God's silent, He's actually working. He's actually working and causing things and using things that are taking place to accomplish His ultimate purposes. Working behind the scenes, so to speak. You know, in our own lives, oftentimes, We have that period, that in-between period, if you would. Call it what you want. But that time period between what you're doing over here and it seems like it's good and it seems like I'm, I'm doing what God wants me to do and then all of a sudden something starts stirring in our hearts and we know that God's got something else for us. We feel like He's got something else for us. And of course, if you're like me and like a lot of us human beings, okay, good, what is it? Let's go. Or what is it? Then I'll decide if I want to go. But in either case, we're ready for an action. And the reality is that in-between period sometimes can get a little long. And we can so so focus on trying to figure out what's supposed to happen next that we miss what God's doing in that in-between period in our lives. That time where He's working in our hearts. He's preparing things for that next thing. And if you would, we can almost look at this intertestamental period as that kind of period. The Jewish people are just living. And we're looking at a little bit of what they were living through. The changes were amazing. 
in a 400-year time frame. Looking so much that it, it actually, they miss in a big, big way what God was doing. And ultimately, they miss the Messiah. And it helps me to understand why maybe they missed the Messiah, why they were looking for the wrong type of Messiah. So we're going to take a 400-year trip in the next few minutes. So I encourage you, you, there's a lot of things you can read and study on this. I'm going to just hit a few things. And those of you who say, I hated history in school and I still hate it today, I think it'll help you if you, you pay a little attention. We're going to look at some empires. The first slide shows four empires. Now, the first slide here that I'm using shows the Persian period, which was taking place when we left Malachi. And it's about the first 100 years into and beyond Malachi into the intertestamental period. And this period that we'll be talking about a little bit in a little, little while, all of a sudden disappears. And then we come across the Greek period. Now, when we look at and the dates, I would give you more dates, and I'll give you some on the next slide, but, man, you can find all kinds of dates. So the dates at very best are estimates. Okay, very best, they're estimates. Some of them are pretty accurate because of the history that's accurate, but some of them overlap, and we'll see that in just a minute. So I think we'll look at the Greek and Hellenistic period or the Greek period. How many of you have ever heard of Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great. That period, he, he, Alexander the Great was amazing, right? If you know your history at all, he conquered most of that part of the world. Ten years. Ten years. He died young. And when you look at the, the, what, what influence that time frame had on the world, even yet today, if you, if you would go back in time with um, Alexander the Great, you'd realize you can go all the way back to Socrates. Socrates, one of his best students, was named Plato. Ever hear of these guys? Their influence is still today. And his, one of Plato's best uh, best students, if you would, was Aristotle. So you've got Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and by now you might have guessed who one of Aristotle's primary and best students was Alexander, who became Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great during the Hellenistic period, and then there's the Hasmonean and Romans. So go to the next slide. Too much information on the next slide, but here it shows six periods. When you see the Greek rule, the second one down, then below it you'll see what they call Egyptian and Syrian rule. Notice they were really Greek. The Ptolemies were Greek and from Egypt, and the Seleucids were Greek also from Syria. So that would all be this Greek Hellenistic period. And this was a time, now you imagine, everybody's fighting over Jerusalem. They're always in the middle of it. The Judea, all of this thing is taking place. And these, the Jewish people are being almost, well, literally forced. One of the most evil rulers in the history of Judea, the Jewish people, was Antiochus Epiphanes IV. One of Alexander Great's goals was, because of his philosophical and cultural training, was to bring unity. He wanted unity and through all the kingdom that he conquered. And that's what happened because of the culture. Before long, almost all of the area 
were speaking the Greek language. Guess where the Greek in the Hebrew or in the New Testament came from? That's why it be, became what it was during this period. Then this Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he decided to force the Greek and the Hellenistic culture on the people. He was an evil guy. They say he killed somewhere between 40 and 80,000 Jews, enslaved an equal number. He made it illegal to, to sacrifice. Matter of fact, you may have heard the story of this evil ruler who conquered Jerusalem and the temple, and he offered a pig on the altar. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish culture, that wasn't good. He defiled the temple. And he offered that sacrifice unto Zeus, one of the many Greek gods. All this is going on in Jerusalem. And the Jewish people are being influenced by all of this. He made it illegal for circumcision to occur under the threat of death. They destroyed as many of the the Torah, the Word of God, that they could get their hands on. He would destroy it. If you were found with it, you were killed. This is what's taking place in the culture of Jerusalem and the Judea and the Jewish people during this intertestamental period of about 400 years. Every time something would happen, it would change and influence the people dramatically. And you can see the, the people finally got to the place where the Hasmoneans rebelled. And one of the primary leaders had the name of Maccabees. Now you know where the Maccabees came from. First, second, third, fourth, Maccabees. And they rebelled. And we became part of this, what's called the Hermonian period. Hasmonean period was named after a family. And there's names and all that stuff in there. But they, they rebelled. And of course, like so often happens, they rebelled. They're Jewish. But in their rebellion and their quest for throwing out the Greek and the Greek influence, they became more evil. The kings became more evil than what had been there previously, so much so that history says when the Roman Empire came and conquered them, they were at first looked at as liberators by many of the Jewish people. How crazy is that? Can you imagine being the Jewish people and you're going through this there's these different empires, one after the other. And they're all, all coming against you, trying to get you to become more Greek, more Hellenistic in your thinking. We could even say Gentile. Pagan, if you would. And in the midst of all of this, different groups begin to form. Can you imagine a culture where the culture is changing? Where... The politics and religion is changing. Everything around you is changing. And all of a sudden, groups start popping up here and there and everywhere to try to figure out a way to fix this thing. Could even happen in countries like America, maybe. In fact, it might be happening even now. Looking for some stability, some sense of truth. And this is what's taking place. And then we look at the different groups that I mentioned. All of a sudden, we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and there's these people. We start reading about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the, the Zealots. Who are these people? What are they believing? Why did they all of a sudden pop up? Why did they come into existence? They came into existence because they didn't like what was going on. 
But they had their differences. The Sadducees. The Sadducees, we read about them in the New Testament. They were always trying to confront Jesus. They made up part of the Sanhedrin, a big part of the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees believed some crazy things. There was such a a weird paradox, if you would. Over here, they were embracing Hellenism. They were embracing the Greek culture, but they were hanging on to the Torah and temple worship. It's almost like progressive conservative all in one. And you can see where that could cause a problem amongst those that thought that Hellenism thing, we want nothing to do with it. We're going to look at Torah. And all of a sudden, we have this group called the Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees were considered elitists. They were more a political party, except for the temple worship. Everything they focused on was the temple and temple ceremony, temple sacrifice. But let's just keep the peace and let the Greek influence be there. Let the Roman influence be there. Let's just get along with them so our power and prestige and our wealth doesn't get damaged, doesn't get challenged. They were not popular with the general population of Jewish people because of this perceived compromise. So because they were the way they were, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in angels. And they obviously didn't believe in a coming kingdom of God because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Now, think about that when you think about when they challenged Jesus one time. They came to him and said they gave him this whole story about remarriage in the afterlife. There's this one, this one, this one. Who are they married to in... They didn't believe in the resurrection. It was a whole setup. And this is what Jesus was dealing with over and over and over. And when we understand that, we can kind of see in a clearer detail the goofiness that was taking place with the Sadducees. And because they were who they were, there was this group formed. We'll call them another political party, but they were a religious group of people called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were different than the Sadducees. They were also in the Sanhedrin. They had to figure out a way to get along. The Sanhedrin, if you would, was kind of the the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. And they were corrupt. The Pharisees took the Torah, but they were so concerned with making sure you and I, as common Jewish people, didn't violate the Torah They built a fence around it, so to speak. And the fence was a whole bunch of laws. Well over 600 of them. And it became known as the oral law or the Mishnah. So you've got the Sadducees over here compromising. They don't believe in the resurrection or angels or spirits. And you've got the Pharisees over here. They both agreed on the Torah, mostly. But they believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels. They believed in spirits. They believed that Jesus, the Messiah was going to come and there was going, going to be a period of ruling and reigning with this new Messiah. That he was going to set up a kingdom on earth. But over time it came that that oral law was elevated to the same stature as the Torah, the, the law given by God to Moses, and actually even beyond. 
And we read that throughout the New Testament, all these rules and regulations. You can't do this. You can't do that. you got to do this. You can't even go feed your animals on Sunday. You can't, they're Saturday. They're, they're, they're Sabbath. All these rules and regulations. Why? To make sure you and I didn't violate Moses' law. It became nothing but legalism. Religion and legalism. Both extremes, neither one good. And then we had two other groups of people I won't spend a whole lot of time on. The, the uh, Essenes, Essenes, if you would. And Bible doesn't talk about them hardly at all. And the world and the history didn't hardly talk about them at all until the discovery of something. Anybody know what that was? They were found in a cave. The deep sea scrolls. The dead sea scrolls. They are the people. They, they were a group of priests they don't like what the Sadducees, they don't like what the Pharisees were doing. They became separatists. We're going to go and isolate ourselves and we're going to stay holy and righteous and we're going to follow Torah. We'll do our own thing as priests. The Dead Sea Scrolls are assumed to have been written by them. So much of the archaeological evidence we have of the proof that the Bible is the Word of God came from those Dead Sea Scrolls. I believe it was 1947, something like that. And they were found for a number of years. They were found in caves. Lots of evidence. So where did they go? Where did the Pharisees go? Where did the Sadducees go? And then there was this other group called the Zealots. One of the disciples is referred to as Simon the Zealot. They were Jews. But they were ready to take up arms and we're going to overthrow the Romans. They hated the Romans so much they hated you if you decided to sympathize with the Romans at all. Where'd they go? What happened? They actually overthrew. They actually overthrew the Romans for a period in about 66 A.D. But it didn't last long, and in 70 A.D., that's when the temple was destroyed, when Rome came back in and took it. Now, if you and I are just a Jew over here trying to hold on to our faith, trying to make a living, trying to just do life, and all this chaos is in the world around us, kind of makes me feel a little bit like today. Man, I'm just, just over here. I love the Lord. I just want to do life, do what's right. And there's chaos going all around us. And, and sometimes we look around even today as, as, as Christians and say, God, where are you? This thing is a mess. Are you paying attention? Are you listening? What's happening in our nation, in our world, in our communities? What's happening? We need to learn. God behind the scenes is working. He's working. What happened to the Sadducees? They were all about temple worship. 70 A.D., the temple's destroyed. Who needs a Sadducee? They pretty much disappeared from the, ro- the, the role of history. The Zealots, gone. The Jewish culture changed dramatically with the Pharisees, and we see it in the New Testament. All of a sudden, it became the rabbis. They became rabbis. They were passionate about Torah. They added all these laws that caused so much problems. Remember Paul, Paul is probably the most famous in the Bible, a rabbi. And what we had developed then is a Jewish religion led by rabbis. 
and it's still that way today, rabbinic Judaism. It still has its influence today amongst the Jewish people that are serious about their faith. 400 years of silence. We go from the people living under the Persians, relative peace because of King Cyrus, letting them return to the homeland, letting them rebuild the temple. And the New Testament develops and opens up with a completely different context. The people were so hungry for freedom, so hungry to be liberated from Roman rule. All of these other groups had arisen during this time frame trying to bring about change, trying to bring about stability, trying to free the people, trying to hang on to the truth of the Word of God, trying to do all these things, and they finally reached the end of their rope and nothing was working, but this is what took place, setting the stage. One of the things that took place under the Roman Empire, they built an elaborate system of roads, highways. All of a sudden, travel and communication was made much, much easier. Took place during the silent period. All of a sudden, the Greek culture comes in, and the Greek culture causes the people to learn Greek. It became the common language of most of that world, including most of the Jewish people that weren't in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, that Egyptian group of Greeks, they translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And the New Testament is primarily written in Greek. Because of the Greek influence, the gospel was able to be written in a way that the common people could understand. The silent period of God, opening up the doors for communication, for travel, Paul's missionary journeys. What did he do? He traveled the roads and the highways developed by the Romans. And much of his ministry was through the Greek. We get the New Testament written in the original language was primarily Greek. A language of the people. God was at work even when it didn't look like he was working. Can you see and begin to see why maybe the Jewish people were looking for a conquering Messiah? why they were looking for a Messiah who was going to come and set them free. A political Messiah, if you would. A military Messiah. Man, church, we got to be careful. We start looking for the same thing. We look for some man or some woman to rise up and change the world around us, change the politics, change the, everything that's taking place. It's not going to happen. God's working. The answer to our problems is the same it was for them, the Messiah, Jesus. The New Testament opens with so much promise. If you're familiar with your New Testament, you know in Matthew, it opens up with the genealogy of the Messiah. Man, we go from ancient Persia to the genealogy of the Messiah. Amazing. Mark opens up with the story of John the Baptist. Malachi prophesied that there was going to be this messenger who was going to prepare the way for the Messiah, John the Baptist. In Luke, he opens up with the foretelling or the prophecy of not only John the Baptist, but of the Messiah born of the Virgin. Such anticipation. And then we have John. John probably opens up with some of the greatest words of hope that you could imagine. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not been understood. The Word became flesh in verse 14 and dwells among us. He starts out with this introduction to Jesus, the Son of God. And Paul kind of summarizes it in Galatians. He says, but when the time had fully come, when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts and the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir with Christ. In the fullness of time, that 400-year period, we have been waiting nearly 2,000 years for Jesus to come back. It's not a time of silence where God is absent. We never, never presume that the silence of God means the absence of God. He is at work. He's at work today. There's a man I want to read this last quote from a theologian named William MacDonald summarizing this whole period, if you would. The stage was set. Man's futile attempt to deal with this shifting tide of political power and religious belief had produced very little. Israel was in a kind of spiritual bondage that was even worse than her political bondage. The rise of various parties and movements like the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots was evidence of a sincere search for some final solution to her problem. All seemed to have failed. The stage of history was dark. The situation was indeed desperate. And it's amid this setting God broke 400 years of silence with the announcement of the coming of Christ, the faithful servant of the Lord, and the intertestamental period came to an end. We may seem to live in dry times where the spreading of the gospel seems to be more difficult every day. The culture is against us. The political system is against the church in so many ways. It would be easy for us to get eyes off of the return of Jesus. Get our eyes on our circumstances. Get our eyes on religious leaders or political leaders, leaders in the culture, trying to do all these different things, just like Israel tried to do. It would be easy to make those same mistakes. But we need to know that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. It's been a long time. What's going on in our culture? Can it get more dark? Can it get more desperate? Yeah, probably. Will it? Probably. For how long? Come soon, Jesus. <laughs> Come soon. We don't know. That's not the important question. When are you coming back? The reality is He is coming back. The important question is, what's He going to find when He comes back, when He does come back for His church? Are we going to be ready as His church? Are you and I going to be ready? Do we know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior? Do we understand when Jesus came in, in the New Testament and He died on a cross and the, the new covenant in His blood was established? Are we under that covenant? 
Have we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? That's the bottom line. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to keep immersed in the Word of God. We need to spend time developing an intimate relationship with Him because the storms of life are going to come. They're going to continue. They're going to get worse, not better, until He comes back. And as I've said the last few weeks, when He comes back, it's really bad news for some, those who haven't accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But it's really good news for His church because we will spend eternity with Christ in the presence of the Father. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that the little bit I shared this morning so quickly would help us to have a greater appreciation for the way you work, would help us to keep our eyes focused on you and not on circumstance. God, that we would be a people, that we would be your bride, ready for your return, anticipating your return, watching for your return, but in the meantime, actively sharing the good news of the gospel with those we come across. Lord, I pray that as we go through these tumultuous times we're living in, our focus remains on the rock, the God that never changes, who calls us His children, who declares Himself good, and His unconditional love, everlasting. That we might walk in the peace and the joy and the love that the world so badly needs. That we might become effective ambassadors for Jesus, advancing your kingdom. Father, we pray also today as we go our separate way that you go before us. God, we pray for safety and protection for so many of our, our family here that's traveling God, we pray that they're having times of refreshing with family and friends. God, we pray that over this whole Southwest community in the Tracy area with all the people coming and going with the local celebration of Boxcar Days, Lord, we pray for safety, protection, and we pray for opportunities to share the good news of the gospel wherever we go. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.